this week's special guest, Gary Krebs, the bait guy. Getting shaken down at the 79th Street boat ramp, the term OG in the fishing world, hanging out at Sunny Isles Pier with Bouncer Smith back in the 60s, all this week on The Real Guy Podcast. Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is The Real Guy Podcast. It's my pleasure to have Gary Krebs, the bait guy, on the podcast this week. Gary has been a mentor to Captain Norm and has been a part of the coastal community down here in South Florida since 1957. Having Gary in the studio this week was a pleasure. I hope you enjoy his story as much as I did. Because in early YouTube, if somebody wanted to watch your stuff, they kind of had to search for you, go out of their way. They had to wait because we didn't have fast access to actually see the stuff. So they were committed you know, to you as an audience. The podcast is the same way. If they're listening to it and they're spending an hour, hour and a half listening to it, you know, once a week, it's pretty pretty significant, you know. And I think it's helped a lot of people that have been on the podcast. Yeah. Especially, the, you know, if you're like, like Norm. Yeah. He comes on, you know, a couple of times a month and people look forward, yeah. you know, that to, to hearing what Norm has to say. Then I have the opposite of Norm with his kid, Stephen Busaka. And we call him <laughs> our the, favorite millennial. Yeah, the world's favorite millennial. So that we get the point of view from, you know, a 28 year old kid, you know, and then. But the whole thing is, is, um, you know, the topics that we talk about is about coastal communities because they're diminishing so fast and getting just. You know, the, any type of coastal community culture is just getting, you know, eliminated, diminished so fast. I got a lot of history on that. Oh, well, yeah. That's, that's why you're here. That's why we wanted you to come in, Gary. But I know that you and Norm are pretty tight. How did you guys get... Well, we were until he threw me out of his place one day. <laughs> he didn't really throw me. He pointed. And I said, what? I said, what? He says, just go away. <laughs> he might have fallen. Leave and don't come back. <laughs> I've had it with you. He showed up at the wrong time and I got pissed. <laughs> I'm over it. I don't know if Gary is. <laughs> it doesn't sound we, like we it. met. It's hard to get over that. We, we, met, we met in 1990. Lauderdale Marina? At Lauderdale Marina. And um, we were, um, I was working upstairs and... I had chatted with Gary a couple of times. He was delivering bait to the Lauderdale Marina back then. Right. And um, Gary invited me to fish with him. He was, it, Gary uh, used to commercial ha- hook and line uh, fish. And, but it was an interesting, it was an interesting first outing because I remember G- Gary doesn't pull any punches. That's one of the reasons I like him so much. And he said to me, he says, I'm going to take you fishing. But if you lose too many fish, you're never going to fish with me a second time. Yeah, be up. <laughs> okay. And apparently I did well enough, and we fished for many years mm-hmm. after that. So you guys became fishing buddies. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Now, Gary, I, I grew up here in Fort Lauderdale. Been here. My, parent, my parents moved here in 1975. And I really can't remember being out on the intercoastal and not seeing you from the time I don't know yeah since I can remember from the 80s anyway he's an OG bait guy well actually I didn't move here till 85 okay I was in Miami before that right and that's where I know most about coastal fishing because when I was a kid 
probably from age eight till 18. I used to fish in North Biscayne Bay between Broad Causeway and 79th Street Causeway, mm-hmm. off the seawalls mostly. And uh, I liked to catch the big Jack Ravels because they fought so hard. Back then they were big 10, 20 pound fish. But we had a lot of snook that we'd catch too. And I tried not to catch them because they didn't fight as hard. (laughs) So some of the guys like to catch the snook and I like catching the big jacks. I do it before school, then go to school, then come home and do it after school. And we'd catch big tarpon on live mullet, sharks on the live mullet, and uh, like I told Norm before, I've caught an amazing amount of fish in that North Biscayne Bay area. I doubt it's that way anymore. One day I caught two good-sized permit, you know, like eight, ten-pound permit. Mm-hmm. Uh, mackerel, bluefish, sea trout, all kinds of different sharks. Uh, there was a one spot where you throw a mullet head out and you catch big gag groupers about 20 pounds. Wow. And it was on a flat. The water was only about three feet deep, and those gags were on the flat. It's very interesting. It is interesting. Every once in a while, you'll, I'll get a gag um, when I'm snook fishing down in Biscayne Bay with the with a pinfish when I'm not expecting it in the grass or whatever. Now, do you get a chance to get down to that part of Biscayne Bay anymore, or you pretty much haven't seen it much? I, I, I quit bait fishing. Uh, in 2012 and I was there all the time up until 2012 now I go fishing with a friend of mine that lives in North Miami he has a boat behind his house and we just leave the San Susi area go under Broad Causeway and go out of Hallover I delivered a boat down down to Keystone Point uh, last week boat they had no steering so I go down there once in a while but I don't go fishing much anymore You know, I'm down there a lot. I'm using that 79th Street ramp all winter long. It's a good ramp. It's a good ramp. They cleaned it up a good bit, which is nice. You don't have to look over your shoulder in a dark parking lot late at night anymore. I was launching a 21-foot oceanic there one morning. I was with my wife, and it was about 4, 4.30 in the morning. I was going to go nut bait and go catch kings out on the 105 out in front of Hallover Inlet. And uh, I put the boat in the water. And I pulled my my truck and my trailer up to a parking spot in the dark. I walked back down to the boat. And as I was getting ready to leave, I saw some bum hanging around my boat, my, my trailer and my truck. I said, hold on, let's see what's going on here. So I walked back up there. I said, why are you hanging around my truck and my trailer? He says, well, because when you leave, I'm going to break into it. <laughs> And I said, why are you going to do that? And he says, that's what I do. And I said, well, what can we do to stop that? He says, you can give me some money. So how much money you He's want? He's getting shaken down at the ramp. He says, $20. 20 bucks. I said, I'll give you $20, but I want something in return. He goes, what do you want? And I said, well, I said, what do you got? So he went over underneath the bridge at 79th Street. I guess that's where he lived. And he came out with a big leather belt with the place where you put the hammers and the tools and everything on like you must have stolen it out of somebody's truck that was a carpenter (laughs) so i took that and i kept that for the twenty dollars so i think that was worth more than the twenty dollars that was a good good deal deal. 
Hey, if your car didn't get messed with, it was a good deal. No. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, they they totally changed it. And one of the favorite things um, at the 79th Street ramp now is they have a big sign that says "No Jet Ski Rentals." Well, that's a good thing. Oh, dude, it was a lifesaver. Yeah, it was a lifesaver. Did you see? Did you see they put up a "No Jet Ski" sign? Uh, at uh, Venetian Marina, which used to be Sea Isle, they, now they're throwing them all out of there. It's, yeah, it's getting better and better. Yeah, it's um, Dade's getting it before Broward County. That that's just trash out in the water. Here, I guess I'm gonna tell you about 79th Street. Mm-hmm. I used to fish with a guy back in the early '80s, who was a well-known sport fisherman for snook. Tarpon, bonefish, and permit. That's all the guy caught. And he had world's records. And An angler or a guide? He was an angler. He was a psychiatrist by profession. Psychologist or psychiatrist. Right. Okay. I think he was a psychiatrist because he could give drugs. But um, he was definitely somebody who had more mental problems than maybe anybody I ever knew. And he was given mental advice, you know. <laughs> but he used to take mm-hmm. me on 79th Street to catch snook and he'd use a, a bucktail jig maybe put a worm on it a rubber worm and cast it along the sa- shadow line of those oh, yeah. little sh- flat bridges on 79th street bounce it on the bottom and we would catch some snook but we'd also catch the biggest moonfish i ever saw there really oh yeah and uh they were actually pretty good eating those big moonfish you could fillet oh, yeah. both sides of them yeah, no, we, we'll, every once in a while we'll go fly fishing for them and fill up a bucket, and you might need 15 fish to get a meal, but... <laughs> well, these were these were big ones. These were these were as big as the opening of a bucket. Yeah, they catch those in, uh, at the pier in the summertime at night. Really? Yeah, little little jigs. Sabikis so work good for moonfish. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing, I don't know if I told you about this, Jeff, but, you know... The term OG is used, you know, very haphazardly, okay, uh, to describe lots of different guys. Like, you and I might be, you know, called OGs. Not really, okay? We're not really OGs. Um, guys like Mark Croca and Gary are, are OGs. I don't and know by, what an OG is. Uh, uh, yeah, original explain. guy original guy original guy original uh, gangsta. gangsta original yeah. guy okay yeah so <laughs> and and by that i mean gary is probably he's very modest gary is probably the finest bottom fisherman i have ever known okay and he's one of these guys that he'll go out and find his spots using ranges and why don't gary why don't you as opposed to what these kids have to do today. Okay, well, I'm just being honest here. I, I got a new cell phone. I don't even have a cell phone, my wife's cell phone. Got a new one about three months ago because the old one stopped working and I can't use the cell phone. I can make a phone call on it most of the time. I can make a text if the person's name's already in there but I'm not really good at all with anything technology. That's one of the reasons I like the hand line to fish with. But um, a lot of times I owned a GPS unit, but I didn't know how to use the GPS unit. 
when I'd bait fish with my wife, she knew how to use it. And she'd mark the spots. She had about 50 bait spots <coughs> at night for catching pilchards off of Miami Beach from uh, basically haul over to government cut. And me, I would use buildings. I'd use palm trees, elevator shafts. There's like a raised area where the elevator shaft is. So when the elevator goes to the top floor, it goes up into this little cement square on the top of the building. Mm -hmm. They call that the elevator shaft. You'd put an elevator shaft in front of a flagpole. And uh, like, for example, there was this one wreck in Miami. I, I used to think of it as nasty. On the north side, N-A, on the north side was an antenna, and the south side was a tower. So I'd say nasty. North antenna, south tower, 240 feet, <laughs> boom, you're on that spot. And then you look at the machine and it starts marking. Yeah, just like that. And first of all, when I started fishing, there was no such thing as... Uh, Loran or GPS to an average fisherman. Maybe in the Navy they had something like that, you know? Right. But average people didn't have that. I had a friend that had a 15-foot Thunderbird ute when I was a kid. That was a little tri-hole Thunderbird. They used to make him in oh, North yeah. Miami on Biscayne Boulevard. And he had a flasher, which was what he used to see how deep he was. And it was a little box... About the size of... Uh, I remember those. About the size of a slice of bread. Yeah. And it was deep. And it had a round circle on the front. And the round circle would go from like zero to a hundred. And in the middle was a little button. You turned the button on. And whatever depth you were in, there'd be an orange light that would flash in that depth. That was the like bottom. Like 60 feet. Yeah. And then if you went over 100 feet, you had to hit another range, and it'd be like 200 feet. And then that's how, that's how deep we knew we were. And that was real high-tech back in the uh, probably the late 60s, or mid to late 60s. Then they came out with paper machines. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's the first machine that I can remember, the paper machines. They, they were nice, and the good thing about them is you could save them. You could tear the piece of paper off right. and make notes on it, which was very helpful to and uh, But I used to work in Miami on a couple of boats. I'm not going to even name the names of boats or the captains. And uh, this one captain who's extremely well-known and very popular and well thought of by most people, he told me that he had in his head 140 spots from Hillsborough Inlet to... South of government cut, whatever light would be south of government cut, 140 spots, every one of them, he knew by visual range alone. That's OG stuff right there. And he, he would stop on spots that were 350 foot deep. Yeah. And we'd have a live bonita in the well. We'd hook the bonita, put a string through his eyes and a knot, put a big ass hook on that bonita's nose. Draw, he'd say, drop it. You'd fire that thing down, and it would be on a giant reel, like a 12-0 full of wire line with an electric motor on the side, the old-fashioned LP. Yeah. And that sinker would hit the bottom. He'd say, hold on. And all of a sudden, that rod would, like, go, the tip would go down in the water, and when the tip went down in the water, you'd have to yell up to him, 
and he'd put the boat in gear and he'd drag the fish off of the wreck. And the main thing you had to worry about was when you were guiding the wire line in with that electric reel that you didn't allow your finger to get underneath the line because it would cut it right (laughs) off. It was like a 200-pound Warsaw grouper on there jerking. And the boat's dragging him off the spot. If your finger gets under there, that that monel just cut right through it, you know? I know who you're talking about. I know know you do. And uh, this guy was the best. And I don't want to say I learned from him. I might have learned some things about being a bad person from him, but I didn't learn (laughs) much about fishing from him. (laughs) I uh, actually, believe it or not, a guy named Dennis Forgione, he took me fishing one day. I think we were going commercial fishing together. And uh, That's free spool. Yeah, Dennis on the free spool. Free spool. Really great guy. Out of Hallover. He's still there, isn't he? Sure. Yeah. And uh, he taught me a special way to hook a pelchard for bottom fishing for mutton snappers. And I didn't know about that way. And I said, well, I'm just going to hook it my way. And I caught a gag grouper. I mean, I caught a black grouper about 20 pounds. And then I caught the biggest mutton that we caught all day hooking it my way. But after that day, I hooked all my pelchers the way Dennis showed me to do really? it. So it was definitely a better way. Old school, OG, like like Norm used, you know? Right. You know, what What? What he's not telling you, and sometimes we, we, we have a tendency here to talk past the audience, the reason why being able to find a spot on ranges is so difficult is because it takes a special skill, not only to just know what the ranges are, right. but you have to set the boat up in the right way in order to even hit that range. So you have to judge, you have to be able to judge the wind and the, and the tide yep. yeah, and the current uh, based on, you know, the conditions that you have. So one day you might be able to find that range. The other day you might not be able to get on it because the, you know, something's changed. So it's, it's different almost every day. Right. And that's just, that's, you know, these kids today, they press a button, they go to the waypoint and it's done. Well, it's not just the kids. It's just, you know, it's everything. It's It's, the way they teach you. You go to school now to learn it. You know, it used to be, you know, guys would teach you techniques about hooking baits and stuff. Now it's all about your engines. It's about your freaking electronics and your ranges and everything. And, you know, everything's in a manual for you nowadays. Yeah. When guys like Gary, my old man, your old man, when they were out there um, doing it, you had to be well-practiced. Like, you can't just do that because somebody can tell you. Yeah. You do it because you've done it 50 times or 100 times or whatever. We also had to have somebody somebody willing to share knowledge with you. Now everything's on YouTube. You know, anything yeah. anything you want to learn how to catch or where to do it or how to rig or whatever, you just turn the computer on. Right. Back Back when I was fishing, you had to know somebody who knew what they were doing, who liked you enough where they were willing to share it with you. Didn't you used to... Uh, host fishing classes at some oh, yeah, point. Oh yeah, yeah. And you were and you and you were a writer too. Yeah. Who did you write for? Well, let's see. I wrote for a lot of a lot of magazines. Sport of Sportsman. Uh, I had a column in this magazine in Fort Lauderdale called the Waterway Times. It came out once a yeah, month. Yeah, that's still coming. Out. And I and I enjoyed that. I got a lot of business from that as a, as a fishing guide. I used to take people fishing, and they'd read that, and they'd want to go fishing with me. And then there was a lot of other magazines. Uh, 
I can't even think of all the names right now, probably about six or seven of them in general. You know, it's funny, I, I, I changed my name to Eric Stevens when I was writing because I was fishing at a haulover one day <laughs> and I was, I anchored up next to a guy who was an extremely hostile, sick person. <laughs> violent as a matter of fact he used to brag that in a previous lifetime he was a hitman and I, and I don't believe it he had an Italian last name and this guy this guy hated me like poison you know <laughs> so I anchored up next to him one day and I started catching fish I think we were catching kings and uh, I think I was catching more fish than he was and he screamed over at me what are you going to do, go home and write an article about this now? <laughs> and I realized at that point that these guys who did nothing but fish for a living didn't appreciate their little secrets getting out. So my wife had a cousin named Steve and a cousin named Eric. And I called myself Eric Stevens after that. He had to go on the lamb. So I kind of was <laughs> hiding from those stupid guys that were way too dumb to figure that out. That's freaking hilarious. Yeah, it's funny. It's it. We we have the problem now, but it's digital. You know, like we won't post what, what is actually happening anymore. We call it spot stealing technology. Yeah, but we'd never had to change our names for crying out loud. <laughs> but that's pretty nuts. Now you talk a lot about um, um, bait fishing, and then so what were you doing? Commercial fishing, charter fishing, and bait fishing. Okay, the first thing I did is I worked on a drift boat in Miami and then the uh, the owner of the drift boat was associated with a taxidermy that owned a sport fishing boat and so I would sometimes fish on the sport fishing boat sometimes fish on the on the drift boat so I got both sides of that covered and uh, we had some we had some good times on that on that job but one day the captain was very rude to me and I walked off and I never came back. I went out and got a 17-foot Mako. And I started commercial fishing in the Mako. And it was actually, it was good. I had a box that could hold about 200 pounds of fish. And normally I caught yellowtails, mutton snappers, groupers, kingfish, and Spanish mackerel. Those were the main fish I caught. Can you imagine the fishing being that good like in living. South Florida where you could do that and make a living? Oh, yeah. Easy. And, and when the fish box got full, I just lay them on the deck. And I got pictures of the, the, the box open and the deck just covered with fish in a 17-foot Mako. And uh, then I got a 21-foot Oceanic. I had it custom-made with a live well in the bottom with holes drilled through the bottom of the boat. And the boat was really fast, and it was a big improvement over the Mako. And that was a great boat. And then I started, I got a captain's license, and I started taking out fishing charters on the, uh, on the Oceanic. And, it, and it, it worked out good, but as we all know, sometimes the people you get on a fishing charter aren't the kind of people you want to spend much time with. <laughs> and when you're stuck on a boat for four or six or eight hours with somebody you really can't stand, it's miserable. And and I had I had this one this one trip this day. You want to hear about a really bad trip? 
Sure. You want to hear about two bad trips? Yeah, go ahead. Take, take one at a Let's time. have it. All right. Bouncer Smith had taught me how to slow troll mullet for tarpon on the south side of government cut in between the tip of the jetty and bear cut. He called it a flat. It was like 12 feet deep in there. It's a big area. And in April and May and beginning of June, the place was just full of tarpon, like 50 to 150 pound fish. And so you'd go and you'd net your mullet. I would net them in the Bellmead Canal. You know where the Bellmead Canal is? I do. 79th Street area. In one throw, you get 20, 30, nice silver mullet. You take them down there and you slow troll them. And I had this one customer this night. It was late afternoon night, that kind of thing. And the guy says to me, I want to have a lot of action and I want to catch big fish and I want something to eat. So I think we caught eight tarpon that were all like 50 to 150 pounds. And then it got dark and I said, it's time to go home. And I put the boat in neutral. And I guess one of the mullets kind of sunk down near the bottom. The guy got a 20 pound black rooper. So when I got back, I flayed the black rooper for the guy. And I said, so what'd you think of your trip? He says, well, it was okay. But next time I'd like to do something where there's more action. <laughs> so I told that guy that he should not go fishing with me ever again. Or go fishing, period. And he should go to Costa Rica. Okay. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I told a bait customer this weekend never to call me again. <laughs> he, he bought $300 worth of bait from my wife. And then he uh, called her up and said that she didn't give him enough bait, which my wife's never cheated anybody in her life. So I just basically told him. Just find somebody else to get your bait from. Right. The other trip is it was his heart doctor out of St. Francis Hospital. And he had a, he had a big boat, 40, 50 foot boat. And we'd fish on his boat all the time. So one day we had a Sunday trip planned and his boat was in the yard. And he says, we can't go fishing. And I said, well, you want to go in my boat? He says, yeah. I had a 26 foot gold line. So... I went out and I caught about four or 500 big pilchards. And he comes to the house. We get in the boat. We go out. It was April. And it was red hot. First spot I went to, let's see, it was me and him and his son and his son's girlfriend. So that's eight, four people. So we caught eight kings that were all about 20 pounds. I said, well, we can't catch any more kings, so now we got to go bottom fishing. So we went somewhere and we caught muttons, and they were all like, Six to 12 pound fish, really nice. Caught a couple of groupers, a couple of gags, maybe a couple blacks. Then some cobias came Broward by. County. Yeah, the cobias came by. We got about three or four cobias that were like 40 pounds. I looked at my box. I said, I probably got $1,000 worth of fish in that box already. So I was getting near the end of the trip. I had to quit at three o'clock because I had to go bait fishing that night. And uh, guy's rod bends over. And I could tell from the way it was fighting, it was a shark. So I let the guy fight the thing for about an hour. I untied the anchor line and put the anchor ball on the end of it, and I followed the thing around. I'm looking at my watch now, it's four o'clock. I said, Doc, I gotta get home, I gotta go catch bait tonight. He says, no, I'm gonna catch this fish. I guess he fought it for about another hour. I pulled out a fillet knife and I stuck it right between the reel and the first guy. <laughs> and I said, you ain't gonna catch the fish, we're going home. And he got so mad that 
First thing he did is he told me he wanted all the fish filleted. So I spent about two or three hours filleting fish for him, $1,000 worth of fish. Back in those days, now it's $3,000 worth yeah, of fish, right. okay? So I had to clean all those fish, bag them up for him, never got a tip and never heard from the guy again because I cut off his shark. So to me, that was when I decided I don't want to do charter fishing anymore. I just stuck to the commercial fishing. I caught all my pilchards that I sold. Oh, I take it back. I was just catching pilchards. Bouncer Smith taught me how to catch pilchards at night on the reef. Nobody used pilchards up here when I first started in, er, in, in the very early 90s. You mean in Fort Lauderdale? Yes. Everybody used pilchards in Miami because they were easy to get. You know, the birds dove on them. You threw the net. You had pilchards. But here, there was no birds. There was no big schools. There was nothing. So... I asked, I moved up here. I lived in Miami. I moved up to Broward in 84. And I said, Bowder, what, what am I going to do for bait up here? He says, well, you got to go out in the reef at night and catch them. So he taught me how to do that. And uh, I was like the only guy with bait. And I was catching fish like crazy when people, people used to commercial fish for kingfish back in those days with a three-hook rig and a dead ballyhoo or a sardine or a bean or and it was like seven nights a week of catching bait. And I remember that. It got it got to really suck. And so I realized why am I taking these valuable baits to catch kingfish that I might be getting seventy cents a pound for? I'd rather just sell the bait. So I went full time bait. That's when you transitioned over. Minimum commercial fishing. And uh I had a very bad incident with my customer. And they fired me. And the next day, I started selling at retail. I had seen it coming. So I went to the city of Fort Lauderdale with the help of my lawyer friend. And I got a license to sell bait on the water in Fort Lauderdale. So they fired me one day, and the next morning, I was there selling it. So that's how that happened. And I've been there since 2005. Gotcha. Now, did, originally, when you came to Fort Lauderdale, did you used to keep your boat over in the hot water canal marina? Never. When I, when I first came to Fort Lauderdale, I lived in Plantation. Okay. And I had a 17-foot Mako on a trailer. Then I had a 21-foot Oceanic on a trailer. Then I wisely purchased a house on the water. When I purchased the house on the water, I bought my Gold Line, which was the best boat I ever owned. Norm what a great on that. boat that was. And Norm I, fished I, on that boat. I remember the Gold Line. Oh, oh that was man. a beauty. The guy in, guy in Miami named Frankie... Frankie and the live bait business and government cut has it now. I see it every week. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's the answer to that question. I got you. Now, the boat you have now, what, what kind of boat is that? All right. It was made by a company called Atlantic Boat Works in North Carolina. But if you wanted that boat now, it would be called a privateer 2850 Atlantic. Okay. I... Uh, I wanted to get an inboard boat. Everybody was switching from outboard to inboard. And I was never that smart to figure out why. I just figured if everybody was doing it, maybe I better do it too. So I looked for a, a hull that would be good for my type of fishing. And we found one in the Keys. Went down and took a test ride on the thing. I remember that. And I brought along the guy that was going to build my boat, Andy Grant from Crusader Boat Company. And we took a ride on this thing, 
and he calculated in his head where my engine should be, et cetera, et cetera. The guy was just a genius with boat building. And I called Privateer. No, I called Atlantic Boat Company to say I want to buy a hull. And they said, well, we'd love to sell you one, but we don't have the mold anymore. We sold it to Privateer. So you need to call Privateer. So I called Privateer, and they said, okay, it'll be 20000 for the hull, and we'll have it in 12 weeks. I said, okay. And uh, That's fast. they called me the next day. They said, would you like it this week? And I said, why? He says, we took the cover off the mold. And your boat was sitting in the in the, I'll be damned. Sitting in the mold, it might have been in there for years, and that's one of the reasons I got like the most solid boat anybody ever wow. saw. Wow, <laughs> yeah, and the so the thing is built like a brick shit. It house. really is, I mean, it really uh, and is. I mean the deck, the boats right now, the deck, uh, the hull is a 1998, and it was finished in 1999, and that deck is 1999, which is 23 years old. There's not a soft spot. A creek, nothing. I yeah. mean, that thing is perfect. The hull is at least three quarters inch thick everywhere. It's got a keel that, when Andy built the thing, he filled the keel with cabosil, and then he glassed over the cabosil, so that if you ever did hit the bottom, I mean, the thing wouldn't even leak. It's got a crash bulkhead in the front. You could run into the seawall at full speed, and you could drive away. It's it's an amazing no, boat. The thing is a tank. Yeah. Yeah. No, I always I always watch it go by, and I'm just like, you know, for one, it's one of a kind. You never see anything like it, really. Yeah. And I'm like, man, Gary must really love that thing. He's just been running that thing forever. So, <laughs> well, the way yeah. it's going right now is I'm conking out, my wife's conking out, and the boat's conking out. <laughs> and so, whoever conks out first, that'll be the end of it. Because <laughs> my wife sells all the bait. She's right. the best. Yeah, yeah, and no, I, I see Julie every once in a while in the morning in the summertime when I need a few dozen pilchards, and I got to tell you, when to, when you start off your day and get to see Julie, yeah, it's, it's already a good day. Everybody yeah. likes Julie. That's Everybody I mean. loves Julie. She's, she's the, you know one of, of those joy. rare people that nobody dislikes. Yeah, well, there's no, there's no, you know. Let me tell you something. The one thing about Julie, and Gary hasn't mentioned it yet, she makes the best smoked fish dip there is. Oh yeah, in Fort Lauderdale. I mean, that girl down there on, that girl down there on on State Road eighty four. She's got a good dip. Julie's dip is better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Norm caught a sailfish the other day. Yeah. I guess for some reason he didn't survive. No, he didn't survive. Yeah, and uh, Norm <laughs> gave me a nice big chunk, and Julie smoked it, and we made dip. And I know I got to get you more. It's in the it's in the, the chunks of sailfish are in the yeah. freezer right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so. You got to hang. You got to hang out with Bouncer in the eighties. I, I actually got to hang out with Bouncer. Let me think about this. In the sixties. Whoa. Bouncer. I'm I'm going to be sixty eight years old next month. Bouncer is about four or five years older than me. <coughs> so when I was a little kid fishing on Sunny Isles Pier, which was my favorite pier to fish on, Bouncer. I, I was maybe in the fourth grade, and Bouncer was maybe in the eighth grade. Okay. And he was the big guy, you know? And he was with uh, all his well-known buddies. And 
Bouncer was primarily a snook fisherman. He was an expert snook fisherman. He'd catch him in the surf, but he could go out on the end of the pier and, and, and catch the kingfish and the mackerel and the big cobias that would be coming through every afternoon this time of the year. Mm-hmm. Every afternoon from now till May, somebody would catch a 50 or a 60 or a 70 pound cobia or kingfish on that pier every single day. There was herring, there was blue runner, there was pilchards, there was sardines. There was so much bait, it was ridiculous. Yeah, in the springtime. And the guys would use a rubber ball as their float. You know what I'm talking about, a rubber ball? What, like a handball? No, it was it was a spongy ball. It, like you could cut it in half and it'd be solid on the inside. Okay. It's like oh. dense foam. And they would poke a piece of like eight wire through the thing and put a swivel on one end and a swivel on the other end. And then they would attach that ball to their line, maybe eight feet above their bait, and they could heave that thing out there because of the weight of the ball. Right. I don't know, 100 yards. Gotcha. And they just let that thing sit out there. And uh, like I said, everybody be whacking these mackerel. And the guys that wanted the big fish, they'd have the big baits out there and it was amazing the size of the kingfish and kobe as they caught every day in the spring and they had a big giant long pier gaff you know like i don't yeah. know 40 feet long pole with a big hook on it they dropped that thing down in the water pulled the fish over the top of it and they'd lift it up and uh, they'd get the thing in the guts and it'd be all over you know <laughs> that's cool that's cool i could i would like to have seen you run around with bouncer yeah. And the rest of the and the rest of the kids that later, you know, became big fishing, you know, celebrity types here in South Florida, down there yeah. on that pier. Well Bouncer's like, definitely a celebrity, that's yeah, for sure. Him and Jack Plactor and Oh yeah, Plactor, yeah. <laughs> I used to work for Plactor. Did you? Actually I did, yeah. Uh, I got a great story about Plactor, but anyway, um Tell a story about Plactor. Okay, okay. <laughs> um I was in my I was in my boat, I guess my gold line one day. And I was anchored maybe 100 feet of water. And it was just a day when no, no boats were out there. It, just, it wasn't like it is now. And I had two hand lines down on the bottom. And I was, I had my T-shirt on and I had my Grundon bottoms on. And I felt the urge coming on <laughs> that I had to take a dump. <laughs> and so I put the, shoulders you know the shoulder straps down and i pulled down the grundons i turned the bucket over and i'm sitting on the bucket and the handline goes shooting <laughs> off on the starboard side decision time so i jump up and i grab the handline and my pants were down on my ankles my 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 pants my underwear my grundons everything's at my ankles and i'm bent over the transom pulling in a 20 pound black grouper and just that second, just when I'm getting ready to pull him over the side of the boat, Plactor comes pulling up with his girlfriend. <laughs> but uh, that was a memorable day. Hey, you did the right thing. Oh, definitely. That's exactly what a real guy would do. Anybody would do that. Okay. That's fine. I had but, the same uh, experience like that on my uh, Rabalo. Yeah. I was fishing by myself one day, just slow trolling some baits, and, you know, had to blow mud and. That's it, man. Just as soon as you pull the pants down, that's a guaranteed bite. I don't care where you are, okay? As soon as you start taking clothes off, you're going to get bit. I tell my clients all the time, I say, if you want to get a bite, the easiest thing to do is put your dick in your hand and 
There you go. You should get a or have a sandwich or something. Oh, I have a sa- oh yeah. God, yes. Oh, my God, yes. So, the, the um, I want to talk about the 80s because yes. something happened this last few weeks that is just totally, I'm having a hard time getting over it. Cigarette Boat Company came out with a jet ski. <laughs> and growing up and going to high school in the 80s, I always thought of cigarette brand as the most macho, the coolest, the flashiest brand of every, of any brand in the, well, that Magnum, in the marine industry. And then the son of a bitches come out with a jet ski. How does a guy like you take that type of news? Well, I don't fish anymore. So the jet skis don't bother me so much, but I do a tender service in Port Everglades. And just like Norm... There's an awful lot of people on jet skis uh-huh. around that 17th Street Causeway yeah. when you're trying to do tender service. Right. So they're not a pleasant thing. <clears throat> but I'm sure you heard about the guide in Key West that killed a jet skier years ago, didn't you? I did not. Oh, yeah. Well, did you see that article? No. That I, I sent it to you, or I might have posted it. There was a guy in a pontoon boat, one of my favorites, and uh, apparently... He rescued uh, this this uh, this couple that were on a jet ski. The jet ski was they fell off the jet ski, but the jet ski kept doing circles around them, so they couldn't get back on the jet ski. So the guy in the pontoon boat rescues the guy in the jet ski, and uh, they fish him out of the water. And the the guy in the jet ski got hostile towards the guy in the pontoon boat, and. The guy in the pontoon boat, he's, I guess he attacked him and did something stupid. And he pulled the guy in the pontoon boat, pulled out a gun, shot and killed the guy. And he was just acquitted. Whoa. Yeah. That's I, just why what you were saying last week, you never you never, you never, never rescue jet skiers. Well, I, I just got to draw the line somewhere. But it does not, does not surprise me because, I don't know, for the last... Six eight years, I've been telling people I said start shooting each other out here. Yeah, and sure enough, they're starting to shoot each other out yeah. there. And I had an incident kind of similar to that many years ago. I was fishing by myself. I believe it was in the fall, and uh, I saw Bally who's getting up in close to shore, and it was it was getting dark. So I figured maybe there's blackfin tunas. They used to, blackfin tunas used to run the ballyhoos in close to shore in the wintertime. And uh, I figured it was kings or mackerel or tunas, and I'd want to sell any of them, so I was going to go in and try to catch them. And uh, it was near Dania Pier. And as I get closer, I see a diver with black wetsuit on waving his arms at me like crazy, like he was in trouble. And so I said, I really don't want to screw with this right now, but... Maybe I better do it, you know? So I go over to the guy. I get close to him. I get close enough where I could have spit on him. And he pulls out one of those big wooden spear guns, like those professional divers use. Right. And he had all three bands pulled back on the thing, on the spear. And he put it right in my face, and he pulled the trigger on it. What the hell? And it didn't go off. And I took the spear gun out of his hands. And I heaved it as far away as I could, and I left the guy there. 
So what the guy was trying to do, he was trying to get my boat from me, shoot me and get my boat. Crazy. Whoa. Then that's Early 1990s. Oh, way back. Yeah. yeah. Way back. It's crazy. Renegade days. So what, do, you, do you ever had any experience with the drug running going back and forth back in the old days? Well, obviously, everybody knew people that did it. Right. Yeah. And uh, I guess the only, I guess the only uh, experience I had with it is I was out dolphin fishing with my, with my mate one day, Alex. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those days where the weed lines run east and west. Yeah. I'm not sure why they do that sometimes, but I'm sure it's something to do with the wind and the current. The wind and the current, yeah. And we were heading east on this wind weed line, and uh, Alex says, "Hey, look over there." And I go, "What?" And he goes, "That yellow thing over there." And I said, "Oh, that's just a package of you know chicken. You know when you buy the chicken at the store, the fr- cold chicken and the uh, yeah, the white yeah, plastic. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's the styrofoam yeah. container. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The chicken." I, he says, "Gary, you need glasses." So <laughs> I go over there, and it was bright yellow tape. No. All wrapped up like the size of an encyclopedia. So he leans over the boat and he grabs the thing. He, <laughs> he puts a little knife hole in it and a white powder uh-huh. comes out. He throws it up in the front of my boat where my anchor goes and we kept catching dolphin. <laughs> then when we get home, he says, uh, I'm going to take this package with me. And he did. And he comes over that night and he gives me a brand new graphite 12-pound spinning rod with a pen 650 reel on it. Nice. He goes, here, this is for you. I go, what's this for? He says, I sold that package. And I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah. He says, but I don't get paid till tomorrow. And then, he, then he told me he never got paid. So I don't know if he got paid or not. But if you spend enough time out there, you're going to see that stuff for, for sure, you know? Well, I just remember back in the 80s, um, you know, living on Muscles Boulevard, you know, you kind of knew who the people were. Oh, yeah. You know, late at night, they'd come in with their speed boats and, you know, boom, boom, boom. And, but it just seemed like everybody in that time, you know, is either if they weren't doing it, they were part of it, they knew somebody that was part of it. And it was like, you know, a little beach town back in the day, but it was known, you know, for yeah. that kind of stuff. Oh, and I was too young, really, to get it. You know what I mean? Like we knew it was happening, yeah. But you know, to, to oh, I was I was anchored up offshore and in, in uh, offshore of uh, Isla Morada, we were catching yellowtails with uh, uh, Captain Star Wars, and he had just gotten out of jail for doing doing that stuff, and uh, all of a sudden we hear this prop plane whirring around offshore, and then he came down and he wagged his wings at us. Which is the international symbol for follow me. Okay, when a plane wags its wings at it, they want you to follow him. I didn't know that. And then, yep, and he circled back offshore, and Alan looked at me. I said, don't you even think about it. Uh, I said, you just got out of jail. And (laughs) the plane came back around again a second time, swung low, wagged his wings. Alan looked at me because this guy was looking to make a drop. That's what it was. And uh, I said... You pull that anchor, and I'm going to knock your teeth down your throat for you one by one. <laughs> and the plane went way offshore again and came back a third time, 
wagged his wings. But the third time he came back and he swung low, there was a DEA jet <laughs> right on his six. Whoa. Okay. And the last I saw of those two planes, they were heading for the Tavernier Strip. Wow. That was, that was the closest I ever got to that. I remember the planes dropping them, dropping packages back there and by the end of the New River. Oh, yeah. You know, in the friggin', when it used to be swamp back there. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we were, we were too young at the time. So you figure either you're going to conk out, Julie's going to conk out, or your boat's going to conk out. Yeah. Once that happens, you're going to stay here in Fort Lauderdale, you're going to find better horizons. Well, I think I'd like to try somewhere else, but the problem is... Um, He's not going in. My wife doesn't want to leave. <laughs> right. And then we got a 36-year-old daughter. She doesn't want to leave. Oh, she's living here, too. Yeah, she lives with me. And so there's not much of a chance of me leaving. I got the similar story. My, my kid's going to graduate high school in a couple of years. And I'm ready to walk when she walks, I got to tell you. I'm ready to get out of Fort Lauderdale. But my wife, she loves it here. Yeah. So I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I don't know. I think a lot of the old saltier dudes just kind of had enough with this place and are just looking for, I don't know, exactly what we're looking for. A little easier living, maybe a little bit less expensive, and maybe getting back to where the way it used to be someplace else. Because it's, you know, I was gone for the better part of 17 years. And when I came back, I, so it's just like, yeah, it's still Fort Lauderdale, but it's not the Fort Lauderdale I remember. It's not the South Florida I remember. The people are different. The culture's changed. Um, and quite frankly, you know, one of the reasons I wanted Gary to come on the podcast is to let people kind of know the way it used to be. I mean, here he is. He's talking about catching, you know, big kings and cobias off the pier in the, in the, in the springtime that you could actually make a living commercial fishing in Broward County at one time. Okay, you can't do that anymore here. No. You can't do that anymore. I mean, and this is, this is, like I said, he's an OG. This is one of the original guys that remembers the way that it used to be. Here, I'll give you an example of that. We're from Ohio originally. We moved here in 1957. And when we moved here, we rented an apartment that was between... A1A in the Intercoastal Waterway on about 190th Street on Miami Beach. North Miami Beach. North Miami Beach, you know, in between the ICW and A1A. It was very low land back there, and it would rain, and the mosquitoes would be very, very hard to deal with. But our landlord, the guy's name was Strobach, and he was a commercial fisherman. And he had a pickup truck. And he would he would fill the back of the pickup truck with mackerel, and he was especially he's a specialist in catching Spanish mackerel. And when it was too rough to go fishing, I remember the guy would go to the fishing pier. This was in the nineteen fifties, right? Yeah, fifty seven, fifty eight, fifty nine, sixty that range. He'd go to the fishing pier, and he'd need wheelbarrow wheelbarrow to take the fish off the pier that he caught. And I guess every wheelbarrow probably had 80, 100 pounds of fish in it. Right. And he'd go back and forth six, seven times and fill up his truck and then go sell them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how the fishing used to be. I'll tell you another story. I used to go to the beach when I was a kid. We used to live over there. They used to have these things. We called them bulkheads. And what they were, they were wood timbers that went off the beach out into the water 
there was wooden pilings with these thick wooden timbers in between. And you could walk out on them. And I guess they probably went out about 100 feet off the beach. And I think what they were designed to do is stop the erosion. Yes. Like the waves would hit them and it yeah. would keep the wave. Yeah. And I used to go fishing on those things when I was a little kid. And I remember one time I was on the bulkhead with a rod and a reel. I was probably five years old. And I had a little plastic bucket with sand fleas in it that I had caught for bait. And a wave came by, like a glassy wave came by me. And I watched when it went by. There must have been a hundred pompano inside that wave, just surfing in the wave, going into the beach to feed on sand fleas. That's how it used to be. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah. I mean, I remember having some days with Gary back in the uh, early 90s where we'd go and, you know, we'd black out the well with pilchards and we'd go and, you know, anchor, anchor someplace and just whack the Spanish mackerel. I mean, just... Absolutely. Just sit on them all day. Just sit them all. Yeah. Drop the anchor once. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I remember those days. The one, the the hardest thing for me now, is the mullet run, because it's almost non-existent at this point. And I can, you know, I grew up on the mullet run. It was mm-hmm. my favorite time of year. It's yep. celebrated. I even built a big part of my online business because of the mullet run. And I lived long enough where it's basically not a mullet run anymore. Here's what I remember about the mullet run. I would fish on either <clears throat> Hallover Pier. There used to be a pier at Hallover. It's called Hallover Pier. Got blown away in a hurricane. Or I'd fish at Sunny Isles Pier. Sunny Isles was my preference, but sometimes as a kid, you don't have transportation. You end up where you can end up, you know. So I'd be standing on one of those piers in the fall. Let's say middle of October. Mm-hmm. With a crocodile spoon or back in those days a johnson sprite we didn't have crocodiles back then we had johnson sprites or a jig be on the north side of the pier maybe a third of the way out you know you'd be casting the thing north and jigging it and catching mackerel and bluefish and the entire time you were fishing you'd look to the north and it would look like i-95 blacktop from the beach where the sand was out maybe 500 feet yep the entire as Coast. far as your eye could see to the north until it was the end of the horizon the entire water would be black with mullet i remember that in the 80s yeah we got some we got that in the 80s mm-hmm. and basically that disappeared probably right around 2000 yeah where it got small enough where you were waiting to see if your mullet, you know, schools were going to come by, and then they'll come by, you know, but kind of like, you know, big school is there one day, then it's not there the next, and then, uh, you know, little school, then a big school, but at least we had it coming by. In the last two years. It's been atrocious. I mean, last year, literally, Gary, maybe five or six schools as big as a city block. Little finger mullet. All mixed together. Yeah. Just, just a, just barely anything left and I, I remember when the canals used to be filled every single canal, chock full right and 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 the, the kids get excited about it now and I don't want to rain on their parade but I just would like them to have some perspective on where we are today and where we came from yeah you know I mean well when I was a young kid probably in grade school 
I always was selling fish, even as a little kid. And uh, we used to snag mullet. We would use treble hooks that were, I guess, size 9-0 or 10-0 hooks. Three of them welded together. And we'd tie them on a eight-pound spinner rod. And the canals down in Miami, they'd just be packed with mullet. Packed. All year easy. long. Winter, summer. They were always mullet. And you'd just cast the, the treble hook out past the school. You'd reel it in to the school. You'd let it sink for about two or three seconds and then jerk the rod. And you'd snag a mullet. Mm-hmm. Then there'd be your live bait. And uh, we would sell those mullet too to uh, all different kind of people. Mostly there were people that were like cutting grass and stuff. They would love to buy them. And you'd get 25 cents or a dollar for the mullet, you know, for a stringer full of mullet. <laughs> and then you go buy candy with it. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, uh, the things, things have changed. There's still some good things out there, very few left. Fort Lauderdale is hanging on by a thread, in my opinion, when it comes to the whole fishing world. Oh, I yeah. mean, just hanging on by a thread. And if it wasn't for the boating industry itself, I don't know what the heck we stand for down here anymore. Well, the good thing about Fort Lauderdale is you might not catch a lot of fish, but you catch a lot of customers. You definitely catch that, a lot of customers. Yeah. Well said, Gary. You know, and the focus, the I think the focus on a lot of, you know, Gary has to remind me of it because I'm one of those guys that still wants to go out and catch fish for the customer. But being offshore, you have to, you know, you have to take your good days with your bad days. And unfortunately, there's more bad days than there are good days. And a a good day, I remember what a good day is supposed to be, okay? And nowadays, it's one of those things where you might go out there and you catch, you know, two or three kings and a blackfin and four or five bonitas. And then you have to try and sell that trip back to your customer on the way in and convince them that they had a good trip right. and you didn't have to do that it, that's 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 something that's fairly recent and uh you know <clears throat> it's you know gary has to remind me hey you got out you got back you got paid mm-hmm. that's a good day it is it is and it's a good it's a, it's a way to keep it in perspective and the people are happy as long as the people are happy yeah. you know yeah so what do you gary what do you tell what do you tell a 14 year old 15 year old kid nowadays that wants to be a fish head well nobody ever asked me that so i guess i gotta think (laughs) um i guess i'd say if that's what you want to do do it and uh i'll I'll tell you what i learned as a kid norm i think norm's heard me say this before the boat i used to work on the captain used to say the bigger the weight the dumber the mate that's right and so what that yeah. means is you always use the smallest swivel you can use, the lightest line you can use, the lightest sinker you can use, the smallest hook you can get away with, and that's how you outsmart these fish. And I, I would say if a young kid wanted to be a fisherman, I would go real light tackle and uh, maybe start a business where you take people out and they catch runners and jacks and fish like that on four-pound and six-pound tackle. And you could still catch fish and you could still have customers and, you know, provide a good time for your customer and do it that way. But as far as going out and catching a load of fish, this isn't the place for that anymore. No. Yeah, I think, I think, I think, I think you see it well. I think you know exactly where the market is right now. 
Gary, I really appreciate you spending some time in the um, Real Guy podcast. If there's anything you'd want to tell the audience before we wrap things up, knock yourself out, because I'll edit this stuff up and I'll make it sound good for you. Uh, I, I just hope that everybody enjoys their fishing and that they're uh, pleasant to other people out on the water. Don't make hostilities out there. I've been through plenty of that in my life. And uh, my wife sits out in the morning selling live pilchards. Almost, How do get in touch? Almost every morning in the intercoastal on the north side of the 17th Street Causeway Bridge. And she has the best bait anybody ever would want. They're all hook-caught. A lot of times they're seasoned and fed. And uh, they're not cheaper than anybody else's bait. But nobody else has better bait. And you can you can find her by calling her on channel 72 or calling her telephone number at 954-522-2809. Her name is Julie. Right on, right on. I really appreciate your time. Um, I think people are going to like the stories that you told. And Norm. Hey. Thanks. Thanks for bringing in your buddy. Hey, you know, I mean, I, I just figured Gary would be perfect for this because there's just so many younger you know younger people that are listening to this and they they need to hear some perspective on how things used to be here and i just couldn't think of a better guy to bring gary in you know than than gary well we're we're, we're losing a lot of the original yeah guys you know i i look now and i'm out there doing my trips and i always had people like bouncer to look up to thinking of okay you know that's you know, I would see Ray Rocher in the in the in the cuts. Yeah. I would see um, Dave Koistjo. I mean, I could go on and on, and they're they're all gone now. Dave yeah. just just uh, retired, I think, didn't he? Yeah, Dave. Yeah. Dave just, just retired, retired last yeah. year. Dave yeah. used to have a boat just on the starboard side of the boat. I used to work on in Miami. Yeah. yeah. Was it not Nancy? Not yeah. Nancy. And that's what I yeah. mean. Very good. And that's what I mean. I mean, these people, you know, are gone, and. They're, they're basically the culture and the heritage of this coastal community. And the kids now are never going to know those people. So through these podcasts and stuff, hopefully they'll get a little bit of you know that spirit in them. And hopefully these fish heads will take your advice, be successful, and make people happy going forward in the future. Anyway, thanks for being on The Real Guy Always Podcast. Always my pleasure. Thank you. Run that dog. Run that dog.